Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Donald Trump's presidency was not an immaculate conception, rather the result of 30 years of increased hyperpartisanship, the reshaping of the Republican Party, the rise of Rush Limbaugh and talk radio, Roger Ailes and Fox News, and Newt Gingrich and his hyper-pugilistic style of American politics. It's arguable that if Gingrich hadn't come along, would others have picked up the mantle of this style that led us directly to where we are today? But the fact is that Gingrich was uniquely suited to the moment. Understanding him may be a big part of the answer to the question that I know gets asked every day amidst death, unemployment, and anger. How did we get here? We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Julian Zelzer. He's the Malcolm Stephen Forbes, class of 1941, professor of history and public affairs at Princeton and a CNN analyst. His previous books include Fault Lines, A History of the U.S. Since 1974, and The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress, and the Battle for the Great Society. His newest work is Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker, and the Rise of the New Republican Party. It is my pleasure to welcome Julian Zelzer back to this program. Julian, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, and it's nice to be back. Well, it's great to have you here. When we look at Gingrich at at the time that he came along, at the time that he really came to prominence and came to power, was it Gingrich that created that moment, or was he simply the right guy at that moment, do you think? I think it was more than being the right guy. Uh, uh, I think uh, the, the moment certainly created the conditions he needed. This was a moment in the late 70s and early 80s. He was elected in 78 when there's lots of distrust in this uh, country uh, for government as a result of Vietnam and Watergate and the uh, morbid state of the economy. It's a moment when there's a conservative movement that's sweeping through the country and will elect Ronald Reagan uh, in 1980 to the presidency. And finally, it's a moment when new elements in the media are taking form, such as cable television and investigative journalism. All of this is a, a backdrop to what Gingrich does. That said, Gingrich is singularly important after that because he is someone who figures out how to exploit all of this and put it together in a way it makes sense within his party and which will be effective at going after Democrats who had controlled Congress since 1954. Talk a little bit about the way in which he understood how to exploit that, a little bit about his history and why he was the one to do it. Well, in terms of the, the distrust, uh, he comes of age in the 1970s and He's very aware of the weight that Watergate placed on the Republican Party. He runs in 74 and 76 and loses both times against an incumbent. But part of the problem is the way Republicans were really damaged as a result of Watergate. And and so he turns it on the Democrats and he sees that that anti-establishment argument doesn't have to be monopolized by Democrats. In fact, since they controlled Congress, Why not use it against them? And that becomes his central argument as a legislator, less about conservative liberal and more about here is a party that maintains its its power unfairly. Uh, And then similarly with the media, you know, he sees that television is really driving a lot of the news and cables creating a very new cycle. 
And he figures out that if he provides that ecosystem with controversy and conflict and figures out uh, ways to take uh, the ability to speak directly to the public and uses them, he could become a national figure before he was really a leader within the party. To what extent was Gingrich an ideologue or was he simply interested in power for its own sake? Well, he was part of this. He was part of the Reagan revolution. And I do think by the mid to late 70s, he had shifted from being uh, a Rockefeller Republican, meaning someone who was still pretty moderate on a lot of policies toward being aligned with this word GOP. And it agreed on less government tax cuts, uh, more muscular defense. I, I, I don't think they were unimportant to him. But his heart was energy to pursue this revolution. How will this actually work on Capitol Hill? And it was about partisanship. And what does partisanship mean? And how does a party pursue its partisan agenda? Those were the questions that mattered much more to him. Uh, And he was willing to be flexible or inconsistent on some of the principle as long as it ended up getting Republicans control of Congress. What was the initial reaction to him among more establishment Republicans as he started to rise? Initially, in the early 80s, when they're watching the kinds of things he does, they're taken aback. I think most establishment Republicans, like establishment Democrats, see him as someone who is toxic, who is a, a new version of a Joe McCarthy, who will do things that are dangerous to the health of the institutions of government, that ultimately the kind of intense partisanship he was pioneering would be destructive to the ability of members of Congress to do their work at all. But over the course of the 80s, when he's still uh, a maverick, he's still an outsider, what's pretty clear to me as I studied his history is those same leaders start to open up to the way he does business, even if they say he's dangerous. And they make a compromise that Republicans will only achieve power if they start being much more ruthless in their partisan politics. And by the end of the decade, 1989, as he's bringing down the Speaker of the House, they will uh, vote for him to be one of the leaders, the House Minority Whip. So it's a story where the leadership compromises with itself and its principles, believing they can contain a Newt Gingrich, and they open the doors to him. Was there ever any talk about the fact that this particular style, while effective from a political point of view, was antithetical to the process of governing? All the time. Democrats, for sure, warned about this and and warned about it publicly. Uh, There's one moment early in the book where Gingrich is going on television on C-SPAN, and and he's making these speeches really using blistering language about Democrats being weak on defense and charging individual members with not supporting the war against communism, basically impugning their patriotism. And and he calls them out, and and they don't answer. If you're watching C-SPAN, the Democrats seem to have no answer. But what you don't realize is there's no one in the chamber. It's the end of the day. It's an empty chamber. So it was a bit of political theater. And, and O'Neill, Speaker Tip O'Neill, gets so mad, he, he warns in public it was the lowest thing he had seen in his career. And he, and he warns about what this is going to do uh, to government. And fast forward uh, to 1989, my, my book ends with 
Jim Wright, the, spe- the next speaker, being brought down by Gingrich. And he makes a resignation speech where he, too, warns about this. And he tells his colleagues that if we allow a mindless cannibalism to sweep through uh, Washington, that it will be irreparable at a certain point. And so this was discussed. And there were also Republicans who made these same kind of claims. But uh, in the GOP, ultimately, it was it was tempted. They were tempted by the fruit of Gingrich. And, and they started to replicate rather than push away what he was doing. How much of Nixon's influence was part of Gingrich? Well, I mean, Nixon's influence in a negative way was important, meaning the aftermath of Watergate is exactly what Gingrich capitalizes on. And that's why he sees this anti-establishment rhetoric could be so potent uh, to building the Republican uh, majority. And and a lot of the reforms that were response to Nixon, ethics reforms, for example, uh, that meant were meant to clean up the way Washington worked. The televised house was a reform that came out of Watergate as a way to throw sunshine on the process. Investigative journalists who were trying to put out good reporting on, on what was going on behind the scenes in politics, all of this post-Nixon elements of politics are exactly what he exploited. Uh, And in many ways, he was trying to rebuild the party in new ways after it had fallen apart as a result of Nixon. Nixon does advise Gingrich. They meet at one point uh, and he offers some kind of very generic advice um, about the need for the party to really think of the ideas it puts forward. Uh, But I think most of Nixon's uh, kind of influence is because of the aftermath of Watergate. Talk a little bit about establishment Republicans and how they ultimately, little by little, gave in to Gingrich. People like Bob Michaels and others who, who may have resisted initially, but ultimately saw the with the political wisdom in going along. Yeah, there's, there's just many examples of this. Bob Michael was the House Minority Leader and and he was one who, who didn't speak well about Newt Gingrich in, in private or even to the press and who warned that Gingrich's politics were, weren't good for the health of the institution. That said, uh, during the course of the 80s, he is the leader of the party, starts to release studies all the time to the press that basically say, or not basically, they say that Democrats were a corrupt majority and try to highlight all the ways in which Democrats unfairly uh, used power, abused power, and maintained their power. So, so he, he starts to become more sympathetic to what Gingrich is saying. George H.W. Bush, the vice president, runs in 1988 for the presidency against Michael Dukakis, and Dukakis is attacking him for being part of a sleazy administration. That's one of the early arguments of Dukakis. And Bush hits back by talking about Jim Wright and talking about the scandal that Gingrich was spending most of his time promoting. Uh, And finally, uh, in the middle of this takedown of the speaker, there's a position opens up as House Minority Whip, which is an important leadership position. And to the surprise of many Washington observers, Republicans elect Gingrich to the position and people like Olympia Snow and Nancy Johnson, moderates in the party, they say, Gingrich, we might not like him, we don't like his style, but you know what? He offers us the best possibility of obtaining power. So there's just tons of examples where the establishment doesn't actually keep its distance from Newt Gingrich. 
And was it because Gingrich was good at, at, at manipulating them and bringing them along, or it was just his sheer display of chutzpah that ultimately brought them around? Yeah, I don't think he manipulates them. I think they they have you know their eyes open in terms of what he's about. It's no secret what Gingrich partisanship means, and uh, the, the, the words he used were were it wasn't the kind of rhetoric people were familiar with, and his willingness to take every element of the political process and make it a partisan cudgel. That wasn't what everyone was doing. And so when these moments of embrace that we're discussing happen, they know what they're doing. And so uh, I think this is what we have seen at different moments in the history of the Republican Party uh, when when they make a deal, essentially. And, and maybe they thought they could contain Gingrich in the end and they could use him. Uh, but they keep letting him deeper and deeper into the center of power. Talk about the importance that you touched on a little while ago of, of what was happening in the media at the time, particularly the rise of talk radio. I mean, Gingrich comes along really in 89. Limbaugh comes along in 88. I mean, all of this was happening kind of at the same time. Sure. Talk radio is the, the first bastion of, of conservative uh, media. And, and it is flourishing. It starts to flourish after 1987 when the Federal Communications Commission abandoned something called the Fairness Doctrine, which required stations to put on both sides of any issue. So you have a proliferation of conservative talk radio. And, and Gingrich uh, is uh, he, he's aware that this is going to help him and it's important to conservatism. Um, I have a story in the book uh, in 1989 uh, the House is deliberating over a pay raise for itself with Jim Wright as speaker, and conservative talk radio blows up in the middle of this, and, and conservative hosts start uh, talking about a Tea Party revolution, that how can Congress give itself a raise? This is exactly what's wrong with the Democrats. And uh, Gingrich capitalizes on, on that because it happens right as he's going after Speaker Jim Wright. Um, but what's interesting is Gingrich, in many ways, was more focused still on the regular media, on uh, the cable networks, the news networks, the major newspapers. That was still his primary base. Uh, and in many ways, the conservative media that we know, uh, starting with Fox Television in 1996, they really replicate and pick up on some of the kind of language that Gingrich had popularized. So the politics in many ways, came before the media really took form. Is there a point where Gingrich crosses the line, where he goes too far in his style? All the time. I mean, that is essentially what he does. He, he's willing to cross the line. He doesn't believe there's a line he can't cross. And so uh, many Democrats certainly felt that the way he handled Speaker Jim Wright, taking uh, kind of instances of bad judgment that the speaker might have made, like many other legislators, and blowing them up into another Watergate and calling him the most corrupt speaker ever and basically destroying his career. That went too far, not just for Jim Wright, but it set a tone for what you could do in Washington, which was it was dangerous stuff. Uh, it was hard, hard to put back, especially since Gingrich himself was being accused of all sorts of ethical problems. And, and many people feel the same about his role as speaker in the impeachment process of, of Bill Clinton. Uh, and then there's just a million examples of 
small attacks, irregular attacks on non-leaders that Gingrich normalized. Um, I have in my book, he releases this memo in 1990 through an organization he controlled called GOPAC. And it told Republican candidates, it said, if you want to speak like Newt, these are the words you have to use to talk about Democrats. And it includes words like sick, traitorous, radical. Uh, and, and by putting all that lexicon out there and doing it as a leader, that went way too far. And, and it's very hard to reverse. Talk a little bit about what Gingrich saw in, in Clinton and when Clinton came to power and how he exploited that. I think he saw a second chance to do what he did to Jim Wright. I think the stories are connected. I mean, with Jim Wright, he, uh, he saw a politician who embodied uh, the arguments he was making about Congress. He was an old school Democrat from Texas. He, he didn't really understand the, the post-Watergate era. He still loved legislation. He loved bringing money back to the district. He loved to do all the things that legislators had done for decades. And, and Gingrich zeroed in on someone like that who didn't really fit the time. And in Wright's case, he saw someone who could become the embodiment of the arguments he was making about why Democrats were broken and corrupt. With Bill Clinton, fast forwarding to, to the mid-1990s, I think he saw a, a Democrat who he could turn into an embodiment of the cultural rifts that had opened up in the country. He didn't see a president who he could easily uh, kind of character caricature as a far left Democrat because Gingrich, I mean, uh, Clinton wasn't that. But on his personal life, I think he saw a foil and he was the person he could argue embodied the Democrats being a East Coast elitist product of 1960s America. Talk about that, the way in which Gingrich understood and further exploited culture war issues. Well, he was, um, I think there was two uh, parts of that. One is he was someone who was thinking of how do you craft a conservative populism when the Republican Party's policies didn't really line up with that. Uh, the heart of Republican policy was about tax cuts, supply-side tax cuts for wealthier Americans, deregulation, those sorts of issues. And I think, like in the 80s, he saw attacks on a corrupt establishment as a way to anchor his populism. By the 1990s, I think the culture wars supplant that. And uh, he can use divisions over questions like reproductive rights and drugs as a way to argue that Republicans could be a party of the people uh, and of working and middle-class Americans, even if the economic policies didn't line up. And they were also issues that you could use to tell a good story. Gingrich, who was a historian by training, always placed a premium on telling the public stories about his opponents, uh, making them into villains and uh, putting them into narratives that would make sense to average voters. And I think the culture wars fit that. It was easy to basically draw a cartoon of who a politician was and what they believed. And, and so for both of these reasons, it was incredibly attractive as a strategy. Within the context of the culture wars, 
where Gingrich thought that would go? What, how far did he think he could push that? Because in many ways, it was an extension of, of Nixon's silent majority. It was. I think he thinks uh, still, uh, and certainly at the time, he thought this was uh, a winning, winning issue. I, I think he believed that if you could convince Republican voters that through their support of the GOP, they were defending some version of a traditional America, uh, an America they either some experienced or some yearned for, that that was a very powerful argument. And it was a way to then pigeonhole uh, a lot of different factions on the left, whether it was environmental activists or civil rights activists, as somehow a threat uh, to these cultural values. And uh, I believe, and and he, he recently commented on the Mount Rushmore speech of President Trump in very uh, effusive terms. Uh, I think he believes this is a terrific political strategy. And it's simple. It's really, again, he values simplicity. And he, since the 80s, he's always told fellow Republicans to be aggressive and to use words that have great clarity in terms of your opponent. And so cultural war issues fit that nicely. What did you come to understand in, in looking at Gingrich and in this story we've been talking about, about why the Democrats were so ineffective and still are so ineffective in combating this style? Yeah, I, I mean, that was crystal clear uh, in, in my book that the Democrats didn't really even see what was happening. Jim Wright never understood what Gingrich was up to. Uh, often when uh, at key moments in the book, when Wright is being accused of, of these ethics problems, his response is to provide reporters with these very dense, detailed legal you know, treatises that outline uh, why he was not guilty of breaking a single ethical rule or any kind of law. Gingrich, in contrast, just went in front of reporters and said, this is the most corrupt speaker in American history. And, and Gingrich had a much more effective style, and I don't think Wright uh, saw that. Uh, I think Democrats in general, they are still checked in their partisanship because they are a party that fundamentally believes in the importance of government. And so when they are partisan, and they are partisan, there's always more restraint because they don't want to go to the place that they will make governing dysfunctional and render this institution incapable of working because they need government. Republicans have embraced an anti-government free market philosophy, and they're much more comfortable if government isn't working. And so that means they could play a kind of partisan game that's simply not tolerable to Democrats. And I think that imbalance has been around since Gingrich came to office, and in some ways it inhibits what Democrats are ever going to do. And as you studied Gingrich and and wrote Burning Down the House, talk about what you saw, the parallels that, that you saw that bring us to where we are today and that resulted in Donald Trump. Well, I, I think uh, I didn't write the book with, I, I wrote the book most, most of it before Donald Trump was even running for office. And I just finished the end once he became president. I was really interested in understanding how did the Republican Party end up this way? And, and how did its partisanship take the form that we see all the time, uh, you know, ranging from the willingness to spread disinformation uh, to taking basic processes, as we saw during the Obama years, like raising the debt ceiling, 
and using them as leverage in, in partisan wars. And, and I had done enough work over my career on the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s to know that Gingrich was really a key figure. And, and so what, what I learned as I studied was just how deliberate he was in his strategy, how thoughtful he was about what he was doing. This was with intention. It wasn't haphazard. Uh, and, and while I think it was enormously destructive what he ended up doing, what surprised me uh, was just all the work and decades of thinking that went behind the way he ultimately shaped the Republican Party. But the parallels were just crystal clear. When, when Trump became president, we watched what Trump was doing. I wasn't surprised at all because you know, I've been working on this book where I've been saying this is what the Republicans have embraced for a long time now. One of the things that's particularly interesting is that Gingrich, and I think you touched on this and mentioned it before, was a historian, essentially, and yet had so little regard for the institutions of history that he was willing to burn down the House. It's an interesting point. I mean, in my mind, the, the influence of the history career really is is on his emphasis on storytelling and uh, also on his ability to grasp where the country was. I do think that is connected to the fact he was such a historical thinker. Uh, and even the idea that politics was war came out of his understanding uh, of the past. But you're pointing to a pretty big uh, limit, uh, limitation on on how he connected his studies of history to what he himself did. And that's exactly right. He was willing to take steps that were profoundly dangerous, and they remain dangerous, to the institutions at the core of American political history as a democracy. Uh, and he, at some level, didn't care. Uh, the importance of partisanship was more important than the lessons of history. And that's a trade-off he was willing to live with. And do you have a sense of how he sees this today, whether he looks back at, at, at his emergence as something that went too far, or does he think that it's all was fine? I, I think he has no apology about mm. what he did. I think uh, when criticized, his usual uh, tactic is to simply criticize his opponents. And if if uh, someone says, well, you know, why did you do all this to the Democrats? Didn't you see this was a toxic way to go after your opponents? He'll say, well, they they were toxic. They were corrupt. Uh, he does the same with Bill Clinton. He doesn't really have much sense of apology for the impeachment. And today he has become one of the most vocal supporters of President Trump. He, he's written, I think, five books. Uh, about Trump and his importance in American history. He's on television all the time uh, boasting of what the president does. And, and I think he's quite comfortable with his contributions. I think he believes he made his party stronger uh, and that uh, his vision was the only way that was ever going to happen. And I get no sense of apology from uh, Newt Gingrich about what he did. Julian Zelizer. His book is Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker, and the Rise of the New Republican Party. Julian, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you.